Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Guten Morgen, bienvenue, whatever else. Good morning, good afternoon. This is Alan Averill. This is episode 59 of Agitators Anonymous. And how are we doing as we approach the big 6-0? Well, well, well. Things are slowly reopening, but this podcast is not about me whinging about all of that kind of stuff. It's going to be a little bit about rock, a bit about music, a bit about punk rock, a little bit about cancel culture, a little bit about rock and roll danger, because let's be honest, rock and roll is in danger of being cancelled by lockdown. Um, but then again, so are most of our metrics of joy. However, let's have a little discussion about 80s rock, about the PMRC about all those kind of things and why it seems like right now there is a movement, I suppose, the counter to the counterculture, i.e. the concerns about individual liberty that sort of um, bedded 1960s counterculture, even the birth of rock and roll, are now what actively many young people are reacting against. And I'm so going to try and pick into that, have a little um, discussion about why that why that might be a look back at the 80s a look back at a few other things and some just good old discussion about metal and rock and roll and punk rock and how they fit into all of this um so there's a few ad reads so bear with me as i get through them uh, eisenwald records one of the brightest up and coming dark labels out there giving you loads and loads of high quality bands um if you use the promo code a-L-A-N, you will get 10% off. You need to go to 
Isenton, E-I-S-E-N-T-O-N dot D-E or dot com for North America or Europe. And you get loads of great bands like Wada, Plight and Ordeal, um, Ungfell, loads and loads of stuff. Post-pagan black metal kind of stuff. Head over there and take a look. It's been a while, I suppose, since I just discussed music, just discussed all that kind of things. So let's get into it. Um, so let's start with a few quotes from Mr. Glenn Danzig. He did an interview in Rolling Stone. Um, he did an interview in Rolling Stone recently where he more or less said that he doubts that a punk could really happen now. Couldn't flourish today because of woke bullshit, he said, woke culture. Um, and at the end of his lengthy Q&A, um, Glenn, who is 65 now, is answering, discussing the song Last Caress. And I don't know about you, but most bands of a certain age um, probably covered that once upon a time when they began. I do remember Primordial playing, I think, She by the Misfits way, way, way back. I don't think it was even Primordial. I think it was whatever we were called before that. But I think every band did a, I got something to say, whatever, you know. And Danzig told Rolling Stones, it's just a crazy-ass song. We would just do things to piss people off. I mean, that's kind of what's at the heart of most rock and roll, belly and punk rock, isn't it? Um, and some of it was just absurdity. Yeah, part of it. Like, fuck you, fuck everybody, fuck this, fuck the world, fuck your system, fuck this bullshit, etc., etc. Glenn drops a few F-bombs. But he does say, I don't think people will ever see anything like it again. There won't be any new bands coming out like that now. They would immediately get cancelled. Um, asked to clarify what he meant, Danzig continued, people don't understand because ev because everything is so cancel culture. Woke bullshit nowadays. But you could never have the punk explosion because of cancel culture. You could never have it. It would never have happened. And that is such an odd sentiment when you consider that... For example, many of the people, well, or at least some of the people, and I know some of the people who would pursue elements of cancel culture do actually come from what was once the punk scene. And so how did that happen? How did everything get turned on its head? How did it how did young people ask for the institutions of state and technology, i.e. very often the very institutions they would have once been railing against? How did it come to pass that they were asking for the state and tech to intervene on behalf of their feelings. How did this happen? How do we frame this against the 1960s counterculture, which originally was about the emancipation from those very strict definitions, those very strict definitions of a post-Second World War society? Because if you think back to the 1950s, when rock and roll began, the idea of a teenager wasn't really something that existed. You were merely a young adult who then went on to inherit, whether it was the family job, the family business, etc., and there wasn't really much that was catered towards you until we get to rock around the clock and Chuck Berry and all that kind of stuff. And it was genuinely a rebellion against the institutions that were still ruling over society in the post-Second World War. And the 1960s counterculture was a full-on revolution against that. It was the emancipation of liberty, the emancipation of women's rights, of gay rights, of freedom to do and pursue um, the goals of rock and roll, so to say. So how did it become entirely, or not almost entirely, but very clearly the opposite of that in the last 10 years? I mean, obviously, it's, it's about social media. It's the idea that society has become so fragile at its heart 
so emotionally engaged with that, which that with that fragility that it needs protection, um, which is almost exactly opposed to the recklessness at the heart of 1960s counterculture, even 1970s counterculture. Could rock bands have even even exist now like they did back then? Could Motorhead exist? Could ACDC exist? And would they just be deemed sexist? I mean, the argument is that rock and roll itself would never get as big now. I remember once, it must be about 1989, um, waking up for school. I guess I was 14 or 15, maybe something like that. You do the math. Um, and Wasp were on the Headless Children tour and they were playing in Dublin. And Wasp was not exactly my band. They kind of were, they kind of weren't. By 89, I think, um, hard rock stuff has sort of passed through my tastes a bit and I was kind of no I don't like that anymore I'm more into I suppose what was the nascent death metal thrash metal scene there was Altars of Madness etc was happening Wasp wasn't really my thing but I had a friend who lived across the road um, who used to get free guest passes because his brother was in an Irish band called the Golden Horde he used to stick us on the guest list so we used to sneak out um, to go to those shows climb out the bedroom window sneak down the drain pipe take the train out to Dunleary, which is like a suburb of Dublin that's about, oh, I guess about an hour outside, 45, 50 minutes outside the city centre on the train. Um, go and see gigs there, sneak in. You were underage, you were 13, you were 14 or 15. Very often get stranded there, walk all the way back, climb in the bedroom window. You made your Ferris Bueller little bed to um, put your parents off. Um, which is, if you don't know that reference, I guess it's not the most modern reference. You made a pretend little body in the bed and then sneak out the window, um, you know. And it was Dublin, 1989, so it was all a bit hairy and crazy and reckless and all over the place. And you would sometimes walk all the way back home, get in at 5 a.m., be woken at half six for school and spend the whole day asleep on your arm it was like something out of a twisted sister video on that day i remember specifically wasp don't forget wasp this is fuck like a beast wasp blackie had been shot at by christians he was on the cover of hot press magazine in 1987 which is ireland's i guess indie kind of punk rock vibing magazine from the 80s that was integral to ireland's 1970s counterculture maybe not 1960s because I don't sure quite if we really had a 1969 Carnaby Street style um, revolution here took maybe a 10 years to knock on maybe even a little bit more either way he was on the cover of Hot Press magazine in all his bouffanted glory and he was talking about being um, phone tapped by the CIA the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource Centre, um, which was run by Tipper Gore, wife of um, Al Gore, who became an environmental superman. She was at the heart of this. And it was Republicans at the heart of this. It was um, Christian fundamentalists. It was right-wing Christians who had this thing called the Dirty Dozen. And the Dirty Dozen were bands that they wished to get banned, basically. And Wasp was there, Slayer was there, Twisted Sister was there. If you want to see Dee Schneider giving his speech to Congress... Um, I think it's Congress or uh, you will hear him eloquently talking about um, freedom of speech. Frank Zappa was up there and his his um, testimony is gold. All about freedom of speech, all about freedom of artistic expression. That may seem a little bit odd considering it's Twisted Sister. And it's easy to, you know, shoot big fish in little barrels looking at 80s hard rock and all that kind of thing. But they were fundamentally standing up for 
freedom of speech, something of which I've discussed many times on the podcast and something which I think a lot of people have taken for granted or have decided isn't really that important anymore. But let me tell you, it is. I mean, look, you're here, so you probably know that. But, you know, Judas Priest were taken to court for backward masking messages in the song, um, was a song from Stained Class, Better By You, Better Than Me, which was a cover of Spooky Tooth, um, urging people to kill themselves, etc., which was thrown out of court in the end. But for a moment, rock music in the mid-90s, it was hanging in a precarious place. All those um, explicit um, lyrics, stickers that were applied to records in the 80s, which actually probably helped albums sell through notoriety. But um, that was the doing of the PMRC. And these were right-wing, conservative, Christian types. And how strange that they would morph into young, left-wing, woke types 30, 40 years later. How did that happen that that process went from that in 1985 to those people 30-plus years later? How, did, how is it the society has changed to produce people who wish for the same, in fact, m- far more draconian authoritarian measures now who claim to be on the side of, well, freedom arbitrarily? I don't know. That's what I'm going to try and dig into with this podcast. Anyway, back to my morning eggs. Wasp were playing. And on the morning radio show, um, the Gay Burn radio show. Now, I know that sounds a bit like a porno, um, but that was our um, the one of the main and most beloved broadcasters in Ireland was called Gabriel Byrne, who did the Late Late Show. The longest running talk show, I think, was ever aired or has been aired in the world for 40 years or something, which, you know, tackled some quite controversial subjects in the 1980s. You've got to give it to them. Um, you know, Catholic child abuse, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I'm there, tired as usual. Even as a teenage vampire, I was always up late and hated school in the morning and ended up sleeping my way through the first few classes very often. And they were playing Wasp on the radio, eight in the morning. You know, fuck like a beast, except with, of course, beep, 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 so through all the swear words. And my mother looks at me, she goes, they're they're not your guys, are they? They're not your band. And literally, I had a ticket to see Wasp that night in my pocket. And no, 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 they're not. I'm not into them, not into them at all. Of course, Wasp had been on the Dirty Dozen list. They'd been attempted to be banned. And their stage show in the mid to late 80s was, especially 84, 85, was outrageous. Loads of blood, maggots, nudity. Um, spiked cod pieces, all sorts of things, simulated sexual acts. It was pretty extreme and something that Marilyn Manson and etc. would go on to copy in the late 90s. And then Wasp would try and kind of copy him through the same turnstiles with Kill, Fuck, Die. Um, A lot of swearing in this episode. Well, no, the algorithm isn't going to like that, are they? Or do they care about swearing? The F word, meh, it's a bit passe, isn't it? It's the C word that people are really offended by. Anyway, 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 blah, 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 blah. So I went to school that day, unsure quite how to frame getting caught, going to see the band who were on the radio that morning that outraged my parents. Um, I was pretty much living in a Twisted Sister video, or let's be honest, living in a Wasp video at that moment. And that day, I was in trouble in school. Who knew? And there was a discussion about placing me in, I suppose, some sort of, um, what did we call it, when you're held in after school for a week, 
Detention. Though this sounds like a Madam X video, doesn't it? I'm high in high school. A lot of bit of quite a bit of singing in this episode. I feel it's somehow might seem to you that I'm a little bit more chipper than usual. Well, well, well now. The sun is shining, what can I say? Right, so I'm in school, I'm in trouble with the teachers. There's discussions about placing me in detention for two weeks, even discussion. I can't remember quite what I did about maybe I might have to leave school, etc. I don't think I was ever in that much trouble, but certainly it was a discussion and my mother was called and etc, etc. And then that evening, stood at the front door. My friend calls over to me to go and say, oh, come on, are you coming to see Wasp? And the parents were literally at the door listening and I was like, um... No, I don't think I can go over to play snooker or whatever it was we always used to say instead of going to see gigs. And to this day, I still regret it. I bailed on going to see Wasp because I was in so much trouble in school. The 1980s, what happened? A band like Wasp, um, bands like Twisted Sister, there was so much movement against them to be cancelled and young people identified with them they identified with the rebellion inherent in rock and roll the the rebellion of um, wanting to be into something that your parents didn't like it was dangerous it was reckless it was wild etc and that's what you identified with and so how did it happen that things became literally turned on their head what could it be because back then um rock and roll was something that was working class it was a it was about escapism escapism you let's put it this way and i often try and try to frame it in this respect but new wave of british heavy metal in the late 70s and the early 80s wasn't really political because it was about escapism it was about people who worked in the foundries or worked hard working class jobs who went to throw pints into them at the weekend and let loose they didn't want to be lectured about politics punk was generally the middle class concern and Maybe rock and roll was traditionally that working class thing. It was about letting off steam. So that's why kids identified with it, because it was a kind of simplistic form of rebellion. And that the 90s, maybe the emergent middle class in society, the post-World War, or the not the post-World War II, but the post-Berlin Wall, the post-Cold War society that grew up around the burgeoning internet, this new middle class that emerged all across Europe, in fact, all across the West um, in the 1990s, the sort of post-grunge society, where all of a sudden the fun and joy from 80s rock music was um, supplanted by the internalized self-hating misery of Nirvana and Alice in Chains and stuff like that good as they were wasn't my stuff but was this a sort of signpost on the road to how could we call it a more informed 90s people sort of grew up in a slightly different way as I said this more middle class concerns which then as we move into the 21st century seep into culture seep into culture in every respect and become what we now know as woke culture Second ad read is Hate Couture. Hate Couture, hateful yet tasteful apparel, clothing, T-shirts, all those kind of stuff. I mean, who wouldn't want an inverted cross bottle opener? You, you need one, right, don't you? Yeah, of course you do. It's blasphemous stuff, my friends, and it will really offend people, um, your nearest and dearest, or your not nearest and your not dearest. Uh, www.hate, as in I hate you, hate Couture, C-O-U-T-U-R-E, 616.com. Use the promo code 
A-L-A-N, and you will get free shipping. And believe me, that costs a lot these days. Go over and take a look. I mean, back then, resistance to what would have been called cancel culture was much easier because the world was analog. I remember this. there's this very famous story about Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, who, this is 1988, so he's in full-on heroin, um, fuck-the-world mode. And he goes to Antrim in the north of Ireland and goes outside, sees people selling bootleg shirts, get, gets into it with them, um, get, has a furious argument. They explain, oh, we're the IRA. Um, don't you know who we are? He sits and listens, and then that night at the show dedicates a song to the IRA and says something like, give Ireland back to the Irish. And it causes a full-scale riot, which he, he told me was encapsulated. I interviewed him a few years ago, and he told me that, you know, the first line in Holy Wars, fools like me from across the sea came to foreign land. Told me that was inspired by his experience in Antrim that time. Um, but literally being bundled out of the venue, put in a taxi and sent to the airport. So the myth goes and basically told, people want to kill you, you need to get the fuck out of here. But that, try and find that on YouTube, you won't be able to. Um, we had to read about it in Kerrang! maybe a week or two later. Um, and it didn't cancel Mustaine. It didn't cancel. Nobody got the, the ideas of cancelling bands for that con those kind of outrageous claims back then when 70s and 80s rock bands had huge characters in them. Was That wasn't even on the cards. And Mustaine did more than enough to, um, than now would have got people cancelled back then because he used to shoot his mouth off at every opportunity. And some of the things Blackie used to say or whoever else used to say were, by modern definition, outrageous. But now, if he did something like that, it would be literally... <laughs> Your whole life as um, in terms of public expression or even private expression can be just thrown out there instantly. You could literally live stream Dave Mustaine's uh, meltdown. Um, so there is no escape in modern times because everything is so instant. So on those terms, could rock and roll even exist now? Um, I have said it before and that... It's very strange that the... I think that what's happened is that woke is almost a religious movement, in a sense. And you can't reason with a flat earther. But it's, a, it's about crusading. It's about being on a crusade for something. And this sort of new Puritanism is at the heart of the counterculture movement. Um, they're the willing handmaidens of authoritarianism. Because what's been sold to people who believe in that is a fundamentally righteous ideal. Now, of course... Um, some ideals are indeed righteous and have a kernel of truth at the beginning of them or from small acorns such mighty oaks grow that you may create gallows from them etc you can have that as lyrics if you wish is that what people wish for now a sort of anodyne society where all elements of offence are removed because that's what that is the desire to cancel the desire to clean to wash clean the mouth of rock and roll um, so to speak we used to say you'll have your speak like that you'll get your mouth washed out with soap etc wash your mouth out with soap it's that kind of desire to create some sort of anodyne um, opinionless sexless dangerous uh, structure through which the most banal impulses of creativity can flourish because that's what people feel they need to toe the line to because words are violence or or however way language is being redefined and how we are encouraged to take part in that redefinition 
and any opposition to that redefinition brands you a heretic. Well, maybe the safe space is some sort of proxy to what Christian metal represented in the 1980s, you know, to hell with the devil. Bit of striper. Is that really what spoke to you as a teenager? Wasn't really. There was a reason why none of us really liked it. Because the devil has all the best tunes. But now maybe, maybe those safe spaces are what Christian metal used to inhabit back in the day. But no one really liked Christian metal because it was boring. It was free of the danger that really should be at the heart of rock and roll. Um, how could you really appeal to the, the instinct of young people to rebel through music that was, well, conformist in nature? And what may seem really odd now, I suppose, is the fact that a Christian hip-hop band or a Christian or conservative, on those old-school terms, a rock band would actually probably be a rebellious band now. So, I don't know, maybe conservatism is the new punk rock. Huh? There's a t-shirt slogan for you. Maybe Christian metal is for all the edgelords out there. I don't know that either. I'm not sure. And maybe that's the rub of it, is that at a, as a teenager back then, the will to rebellion was very strong in society. The will to um, shake your fist at the institutions of power and privilege and try and hold power to account with your rock and roll. As naive as it may seem, but that was what was at the heart of it. Now it seems to be the opposite thing in the sense that younger people seem to want the safety and protection of the institutions of the state. And many of this, much of this is exemplified in um, our experience, I think, of lockdown through the last 18 months. The, the form of least resistance seems to, be, seems to have come from young people towards all of this who maybe have another life online and don't seem to realise the, you know, external life that they are losing or handing over of their freedoms and liberties to institutions of state? Or is it just because that's the way they've been programmed to deal with problems, i.e. to find offence in this, to find danger um, where it doesn't necessarily exist and ask the institutions of state and governance to intervene on their behalf as opposed to rebelling against those very same institutions. So on those terms acceptance of where we are as a society and your the wings of your liberty having been clipped you can have that as a power metal lyric as well um just seems quite familiar it's like oh well of course it would happen like that or i'm just being an old grumpy bollocks who wanted to tell a story about wasps it could also be that as well i'd read number three the mighty metalblade.com over 30 35 40 years of history what do you want you want to get some old Six Feet Under, Fate's Warning, Cannibal Corpse, Slayer, Bolt Thrower, Bolt Thrower, Primordial, whatever you want to do. Just go to www.metalblade.com and put the promo code AAPODCAST and you will get 10% off in North America only. Um, and that's worth quite a lot. Go and take a look. Um, yeah, do it. But could rock music really exist in the same way? I often think about comedy. Comedy is a strange thing. I used to hang around with quite a lot of comedians. You've probably seen on my YouTube channel, Steve Hughes, um, who used to live with me. Um, I know many, many comedians, whether it's Jason Rouse, and went to a lot of comedy festivals 15, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. But comedy changed as well. Um, and it felt like... Now, I could do a podcast about 
why almost all of the top podcasts are done by comedians. But I suppose it's self-explanatory, really, because talking is exactly what they do for a living. And so, you know, I mean, does anybody really like Joe Rogan's comedy, so to say? Don't think I've ever met anybody who does. But, you know, he, as a, he's become one of the most important social figures of the 21st century through talking, through being the everyman who just asks questions, who isn't afraid of looking a bit dumb. You know, for that, I, you have to salute the guy for holding the middle ground, despite the fact that people who are part of this cancel culture, woke culture stuff, whatever, would call him this, that and the other. But when we're rational about it, he really is not that person. Um, however, I digress. But comedy was ready made to take over the world of podcasting and therefore the world of modern entertainment, I suppose. But again, the spaces that have been created for holistic comedy, if anybody's seen SNL lately, I mean, I'm using some American references, but comedy works best when it's dark, when it's there for people who have been through dark times to deal with that. It works as an anecdote to the pain and suffering, I suppose, once upon a time that working class people felt much like the escapist joy of New Wave of British Heavy Metal, I think, in the sense that people didn't go to comedy to be lectured at. Of course, there was, you know, the counterculture comedy of the early 1980s, which was genuinely rebellious and fighting against institutions. Um, all the great people we know, the Rick Mayles and the Adrian Edmondsons and all those kind of people, um, the French and Saunders and all those great UK comedians in the early 80s. Um, Lenny Henry is amazing. Uh, also, his story about how, where he came from in the 70s. So I'm not advocating for the kind of, you know, sexist, racist, bullshit comedy of the 70s. So not advocating for that at all. But because I see in the early 1980s, that was the rebellious thing. But now it would feels like that the people advocating for the censorship, for example, of comedy are more in line, oddly enough, with the um, stringent... Um, authoritarian structures of 1970s comedy the inherent conservatism at the heart of that um, the anti-liberalism it was the liberal movement of the early 1980s who kind of wanted more recklessness what am I trying to say I'm getting sidetracked my point was I remember being at a few things uh, a few com comedy things in the last 5-10 years and I always thought to myself you shouldn't really be coming to a comedy show with a yoga mat. Um, I don't think you're going to... Maybe I was being, you know, surreptitious. Is that the right word? Maybe I was being a bit of an asshole who knew. But the idea that you would stand in and watch comedy with um, groups of middle-class women who've just come from yoga would seem to me that that's not the kind of comedy that appeals to me. Holistic comedy. Is that really what we... Look for Lenny Bruce once went to jail for his comedy. Um, there used to be, you used to be able to have edgy comedy. In fact, that was the definition of comedy in the 80s and 90s, and most people aspired to that. And yet, now, what is that about? I would propose that it's actually a form of middle class, um, let's call it almost colonialism, um, a colonialism of culture. It's a middle class paternalism at the heart of society, which would like to decide for you what is funny, what is sexist, what is racist, or, or whatever ism you like, ist you like, and take the opportunity away from you to decide for yourself. It is paternalistic, as I said. It's almost neo-colonial, which is one of the things that it would pretend to fight, because it's removing your 
agency in relationship to how you react to all of those things. Um, and it, of course, humor is subjective. Offense is subjective. So is taste. So what is this? Is it just an effort to just arbitrarily cancel joy? Surely we are allowed to laugh on our own terms and all of these things. Um, you've been invited to participate in something that is sold to you as a moral crusade. Very much like the 1980s, very much like the PMRC, very much like all of the people who tried to cancel shows, to cancel music in, this, in the 1980s. You were invited to, take, to, take, to, to be part of a religious awakening, a moral crusade against what was seen as the evils of society. But how bizarre that that's been entirely turned on its head. Because it isn't about diversity of opinion or really diversity of choice. It's just, I think, generally about a form of paternalistic, soft authoritarianism. And this is exemplified, I think, by the middle class reaction to, for example, the pandemic or to lockdown, um, whereby the form of the collectivist nature of a self-righteous um, how can we call it? The collective nature of a self-righteous reaction. But on the other side, I see a very great urge by a certain section of society to embrace the collectivism because it gives a form of moral superiority. Very much like the idea that when you cancel a show, a speaker, you feel like you've been rewarded. You've done the right thing. And is that because people have been inculcated through 10 years of social media to measure their um, success in life based on likes or dislikes. That was, that was digital programming at a very early, in the very early beginnings of all of this. You post something, you get likes, you get dislikes. It's human nature. You keep reopening the picture to see the measure, the measure of likes. People freaked out when Instagram changed their algorithm to stop showing the number of likes because they, um, they said it was to stop that kind of feeling within people. But I'm sure there was some other internal algorithm working that out that people would post more, maybe. Who knows? But the idea that people have been programmed into this like-dislike culture and sold their participation in a righteous cause um, through online activism in lieu of agency in the real world is a really, really strange, strange, strange circumstance, but hardly really surprising when you consider human nature in relationship to the 10 year social media cycle of derangement that we are on. But how much harder is it to rebel against that now? Considering where technology is, considering that technology could take your voice, my voice, anyone's voice, um, be able to have it uh, saying anything they want. The idea of the uncanny valley, I suppose, veers or looms closer and closer and closer when you have AI going to be able to... I suppose I should explain that, maybe. The uncanny valley, I suppose, is the limits to digitizing um, elements of facial recognition or humanity that we, we recognize in that Star Wars when we see um, Officer What's-His-Name, I can't remember... Um, I guess it's Peter Cushing, right? I should know this. Shame on my hammer, horror, um, lack of knowledge and respect. You recognize that that's 
an animation, a form of CGI, but as, and that's called the uncanny valley, that somehow you recognize it, as I understand it. But that percentage of recognition gets less and less and less. As you've maybe examined before, the concept of hypernormalization through those Adam Curtis movies, the idea that you never quite know what is true or what isn't true. Are we really seeing Putin in, um, I don't know, a hospital in Crimea, you know, searching through the, looking over the ruins of the, or was this film two or three years ago? Or what is a film set? What is CGI'd, et cetera, et cetera. Very soon, the difference between those things is going to be so minimal that we might not notice it. So back in the day, maybe you have been, you would have been like a rebellious band back in the 90s, 80s that courted controversy like Wasp. But you were still selling millions of records. You were still putting, um, filling small stadiums. You were, or well, sometimes stadiums. You were still selling records. You were making people money. There was an economy behind being um, rebellious. And now I'm not sure that the same economy exactly exists because cancel culture or whatever you want to call it can follow. Uh, someone, a creative, a musician, a poet, a playwright, um, an author, almost everywhere. And all it can take is one email of disagreement for um, maybe a, a venue to pull their show. And it doesn't really need any explanation because we've done away with the process. We've done away with the process of due process, i.e. the concept that you are innocent until proven guilty and that you are able to put your side of the story just isn't part of this uh, righteous you know, crusade. But that's part of the religious element of it. You don't give the witch a chance to really answer back and prove that she's innocent, do you? No, you're busy. You just keep dunking her in the water or torturing her or whatever else um, clumsy analogy I've just made. But the idea that there isn't a redemption, I said this before on the podcast, um, which is that Oddly enough, many, many people um, would oppose the death penalty, but would like to see people cancelled for a tweet. Now, somebody disagreed with me immensely about that on um, online. That's OK. You can disagree with it if you want, but I think the argument stands. The argument stands. Um, and it's about the proportionality of response towards um, words, towards deeds, towards freedom of speech and freedom of expression, which I've often said before are paramount. Um, my absolutism when it comes to those things sometimes gets me into trouble. But the point is that the alternative is far, far, far worse. I can give you, for example, in the uh, in the UK, if you've got this far on the podcast, it's worth a podcast of its own. But the Scottish National Party in the UK, Humsa Yusuf, Humsa, Humsa Yusuf, introduced and passed a hate speech bill in Scotland which would allow for dinner table conversations, quote unquote, to be defined as hate speech, to be redefined as hate speech. And it got passed and there wasn't really much, didn't really seem to be much of a pushback about it. Is this something that was just passed um, during lockdown when people were so busy, mentally preoccupied with other things? Who were the people who voted for this and who's policing this? Is that policed by Alexa? Is that policed by your phone? Is your phone going to literally be able to um, uh, report you to authorities. We've seen across the UK people being visited by the police for offensive, and I'm doing little rabbit ears, parenthesis, tweets of all this kind of stuff. It's and the idea that hate speech um, is arbitrarily decided by whoever is in power is, is so dangerous and worrying. I mean, look, we've just witnessed 
Belarus downing a plane, a Ryanair plane, um, in order to capture a dissident journalist, a dissident journalist. So who decides what is hate, what is dissent? And that's the whole point, is that if you are cheering from the sidelines for what you see as we must combat hate, remember that eventually the restrictions that are in place around such a legislation can come for you or the people you love or the people you defend or the bands you like or the authors you like. It doesn't just stop at the things that you dislike. That's a rather naive misreading of history because once you place that much um, power in the hands of the powerful and then you have less and less ability to hold that power to account, of course it eventually comes for you. Don't assume that it doesn't. That's a naivety on a massive scale. Now, of course, if I just drawn a very clumsy analogy between Belarus, um, you know, capturing a dissident journalist and Scotland, Scotland, um, you know, beautiful Scotland, passing a hate speech legislation bill that would allow for comments made in the confines of your own home to be defined as hate speech. Are those two things correlated? Certainly, they both have elements of authoritarianism at the heart of them, elements of social control at the heart of them, and both. One is an authoritarian state, the last tyranny, really, in Europe. And yet, I've said many times in the last almost 60 episodes of the podcast that, at the very least, looking at the authoritarian measures that have been used, that have been... that have loomed into view over the last year and a half because like I've said democracy is paused liberty is suspended or whichever way you want to say that all those rules and laws and restrictions and regulations that have been put in place by states and governments across the West and no doubt even further um, the moment that we're in as a society is being used to implement those things as I said before, democracy is not the default setting of society. So do we look at something like what happened in Belarus and go, oh, and then compare that dissident, journal that dissident journalist as some kind of signpost on to where things might be headed? Of course, it's a rather extreme example. You're talking about one of the last authoritarian um, tyrannies in Europe, but there are elements. There are elements that echo down through some of the implementations of the new surveillance state that we are facing up to. Context is the word I'm searching for. Who said that context doesn't matter. How is that possible that context does not matter? Context is everything all of the time. Skepticism is the only rational perspective there is and it's contextual. Indeed. So what am I trying to get at here? It's a ramble. It's a ramble, but I've felt quite inspired by lately. Oddly enough, um, must be a change of mood or something. I said before that I was only listening to really brutal music, but I started watching some old hard rock documentaries, uh, stuff about Warrant and Motley Crue and all this kind of stuff, and the '80s recklessness and excess, um, and how that was um, how that was exemplified also in 1980s movies and the sort of um, lack of second guessing that was prevalent in all 80s hard rock and heavy metal especially American style uh, and that sort of charm and naivety that went with that whole scene that got replaced and supplanted now that's what I'm going to do in the next episode is discuss the downfall of hard rock and heavy metal in the mainstream why that happened how that happened 
um, and why rock music literally has no mainstream purchase whatsoever anymore. Um, at least in my opinion, or at least that's how we knew it. But it got me thinking about that wasp, um, that wasp morning, that time in school when I was in a wasp video for a whole day. And it got me thinking about um, the PMRC, the Parents Music Resource um the Parents Music Resource Centre and Tipper Gore and all those kind of people and why it seemed that the that the inheritance of those people came somehow filtered through society from being the conservative religious right to the modern identitarian left, so to say. And how how did those two how do those things is it simply because politics is like a horseshoe and at the top end meets almost meets? Is it like that? I don't know. It's very complicated. Um, but it's just sort of fascinated me because I thought to myself, could 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 rock and roll exist? Could punk rock exist as we knew it without offence? Surely that's the innate nature of punk rock, the innate nature of rock and roll, the innate nature of a motorhead or whatever. Is that feeling of rebellion, of um, being opposed to the status quo, as much as I love status quo, um, of holding power to account, whereas now... Very often I see the people um, are the handmaidens of that very power that once upon a time people of their generation tried to hold to account. And I think it's very dangerous. And of course, like I said, for the purposes or of a podcast of being in um, some grumpy middle aged dude, then, you know, this can be exacerbated. This can be um, you can always go, oh, look, Alan, it's not as bad as all that. Yeah, you might be right, but I also might be right as well. That's at the heart of this also is that lots of different narratives can be true at the same time but what I would contend as I said before is that some part of this the will and want to control society and culture and freedom of speech and not really prize freedom of speech or freedom of expression would appear to me to be a form of inverted paternalistic middle class colonialism on some level a colonialism of culture the day, the decision that you are not within your right mind to make these choices for yourself. So therefore, we must make them for you because we are more informed. We follow the correct holy book. Anyway, my friends, F episode 59 is part one of a sort of look at um, 80s hard rock, punk rock, all that kind of thing. And next week I'm going to get into, or whenever I do it, I'm going to get into why rock in the mainstream disappeared. How... Uh, 1980s hard rock was defeated by Nirvana and grunge and how that in turn was defeated by hip hop and how the nature of recklessness and rebellion changed within people, that kind of thing. So, my friends, don't cancel joy. Don't cancel joy. Go and follow me on Instagram, Nemtiang underscore Primordial. If you like the show and you've gotten this far, rate it, review it, share it with people you think might enjoy it. Link it to people, whoever. Peer-to-peer -peer sharing is one of the only ways things will grow. If you want to go over to patreon.com slash alanaverill, I do other bonus podcasts. I do this and that, rehearsals, other forms of things that I don't release normally. So, until the next time, my friends, nanu nanu, over and out. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.